Pod. 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 Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. It's the day after signing day, Danny. Do you feel? Do you, are you are you coming down from that high? I, I know how excited you get Tuesday night, going into Wednesday morning, waiting up for signing day clause. Your stocking hung with care. I have some very, like I don't think you should judge how someone else enjoys college football, right? Like there's there everybody gets their own rules on how to do it. Recruiting is what puts that to the test for me because it is it, it it's hard for me to get into recruiting and to not think that getting into recruiting, getting deep into recruiting is, is, is a highly problematic type behavior. I understand why the kids are into it and I understand why the teams are into it and the coaches. But there's a big part of me that feels that that appetite of fans for recruiting news is kind of what makes this so crazy. It's hard to fault fans, though, because it's the most important thing. It's talent acquisition. Absolutely. It's how 100%. you get good. It's the I same reason. I will say, and, and we, I should note, we're recording this at 9 a.m. on Wednesday. Of, of the 15 prospects uh, Washington's expected to sign today, 12 have signed. Um, no reason to think that uh, by the time you listen to this, uh, Demarcius Davis, the quarterback, and... and um, Jason Robinson, the receiver, uh, won't be in the boat. Dominic Kirks, the edge rusher from Ohio, has always kind of seemed like the 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 most likely candidate to not have a letter come in today. We'll see uh, if that changes throughout the day. If it does, you you, you might not hear this part. Um, but it 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 looks <laughs> like Washington is for the most part going to sew up a, a relatively small high school class. There's also Paul Mankey Jr. Uh, four-star safety who's committed to Duke who um, is is signing his letter later today and widely 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 assumed to be flipping to Washington would imagine he will be in the boat as well um, but what strikes me on this signing day and I I can can give some thoughts on some of these guys later I, I think it's a, a kind of quietly pretty good class um, for how small it is it, there just doesn't seem to be the fervor over, you know, the early excitement of who these guys are going to be that they're used to, because I think the transfer portal has replaced that. And it's not just, oh, you go out and fill holes by getting experienced guys instead of, you know, developing high school players like that's a whole other debate. But it's almost it's it's well, not almost it's it's basically just like NFL free agency where you're going out and recruiting starters. You're going out and recruiting guys who have maybe been all conference, guys who have produced, guys who, in, in in some instances, you've seen play on the field against the Washington Huskies. So I think that there's so much more anticipation now this time of year around who are they getting in the portal, what's the starting lineup going to look like next year, um, and maybe some of that you know real anticipation over what high school recruits are are signing has subsided and i think like some of that is healthy it's it's right it's almost like it's it's balancing out some and it, it's forcing people into a let's wait and see uh mentality when it comes to the high school kids the transfer portal is actually better than nfl free agency in the nfl 
the way the economics work, is it stilted toward because of how extensions and specifically extensions for younger players um, after their third year, the guys who get to free agency, it's not that they're not good, but that the premier players more likely than not will have signed extensions. They never get there. It's a little different in college. You, there's not the same barriers to to transferring. Obviously, a guy's not going to leave unless he sees a better opportunity or for some reason see, seeks a change. But it is it is much different. You can, <laughs> if a really top flight player decides he's going to transfer, there's not much his school can do to stop him at this point. Whereas in free agency, there's the franchise tag. And then, like I said, the extensions thing, it makes it, it makes it really interesting. It is going to make recruiting high school, recruiting of high school athletes a little less important. I I don't, I don't think it'll ever not be the primary way to develop a program that, that, that becomes how many elite high school players you're able to, to sign, I think will always still be the lifeblood. But it's not as important as it once was just because there's not the same barriers to leaving that there used to be. The uh, Who's going to be the first NIL collective to build in a franchise tag to their initial agreement with a guy? Well, if after your sophomore year. Dude, I am telling you, the, the amount of lawsuits that are eventually going to come out from some of the NIL stuff is going to be staggering, I think. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of zany stuff like that because can you, can you imagine going in and saying like, no, your honor, we had a contract that if he left after two years, he was going to pay us back 75% of what he gave him. The kid's like, it's spent, man, like, <laughs> blood from a stone. Are we going to have 20 year old college football players declaring bankruptcy so that they can't have legally binding contracts and for there's going to be a lot of zaniness on that end of it because i do think you'll eventually see that who who is the kid that uh that went to arizona who was at florida oh uh jaden rashada to arizona state when when rashada so could he have sued the gator collective um no because (laughs) so as the athletic wrote there was a clause in that contract that allowed either party to tear it up at any time for any reason. <laughs> okay. 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 So they protected themselves, but like, wouldn't that be hilarious? If the kids like, an, I'm going to sue decide. you. Yeah, it's, yeah. The whole thing's hilarious. No, you're, I, I'm, I'm waiting for the first big one. Um, because you hear rumors all the time of kids, not happy with uh, the payments schedule or structure or promises were made and not being kept or um i i am i'm i'm curious to see though if a collective tries a franchise tag like if they if if they build in up front you know we'll pay you a hundred thousand dollars a year if after your sophomore year let's say you decide you want to transfer um for a a larger nil deal elsewhere you must present us proof of that nil deal and we have the exclusive right to match that number and force you to stay. That's insane. Like if that, and it's not, it's not far fetched. That's the sort of stuff that happens in business. And then it becomes the question of it's, I mean, that all this is taken outside the jurisdiction of the NCAA by, by definition, it's, 
there's the possibility for high level shenanigans to go on. This brings to mind. I wish I could remember to give proper credit. This is not my own idea. Somebody, either a, a subscriber or somebody on Twitter, mentioned um, that maybe this version of college football, with in, in specific regard to the transfer portal, actually would have it would have been preferable for somebody like Chris Peterson to navigate because rather than the thing that pushed him out, because you're dealing more often with mature adults who are attempting to make business decisions mm -hmm. and going through the process in a very professional business-like way. And, you know, I, I don't know that Chris Peterson would love dealing with agents, but like they have professional representation and the, the, the whole thing, like my, my perception of recruiting out of the portal is that it's very business-like. Um, it's, you know, kids who have been through the high school recruiting piece of it and either hated it or just don't want to do it again. You know, they're not coming and taking photo, you know, the, the, the portal kids aren't doing photo shoots. Um, they, they're kind of past that. And now it's really just about like, okay, I got to get this one, right. I got to find the best fit for me. And, you know, maybe the school that could pay me the most money, like that's a big factor too, but you're, you're probably not taking a trip and visiting a school if their NIL is, is just not in a realm where you'd consider it. So it's an interesting thought. I, I kind of still tend to think Chris Peterson's quite pleased with his decision to do with his life, what he's doing with his life. But it, I, I think know. there, there I is know, something to the I thought see. that like, the more you focus on the portal, the more you're dealing with people who are, are making business decisions and are not going to be swayed by like the glitz and glamour of it all. I don't know, man. He has to spend Saturdays sitting next to Emmanuel Acho. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm just, I'm just saying that would be enough to get me to question some of my life decisions if that happened. But maybe Chris Peterson is a much more patient man than I am. Uh, Cause there is some stuff that comes out of that guy's mouth. That is inane. As we've seen, um, I mean, I, I wrote some about the blue chip ratio on Tuesday, which is and, fascinating. Yeah. Um, I'm, I've always been very intrigued by the blue chip ratio. If you if you don't know what it is, I do have a story about Washington attempting to, uh, to bust it, to become the first team to, uh, to win a national championship in this BCS slash CFP era without having recruited a majority of blue chip prospects in its previous four classes. Every national champion since at least like 2005 has, has done so. Um, Not only that, but the majority of teams that are there, what Washington and I'm going off a of memory in the story, Christian. So correct me. 2016 Washington, did they have a quarter. They had a quarter of their recruits were blue chip. The, their blue chip ratio was like 25%. I think it was 26%, yeah. And that year they're clearly they were the they were the number well, would you say they're the number 4 team cuz the other team got smoked in the in the semifinal tube. There was a clear talent gap. There were two dominant teams that year. There were two dominant teams and there was a significant gap and we saw that gap between Washington and Alabama especially in the second half of the game. And then what the next one Oregon was was 40% when when Oregon reached the is that 2011 against cam newton or is that a subsequent year is that 2014 the the, the Jameis winston falling backward fumble game the they were at 40 percent and really like that's 
it's amazing to think at how that ratio has kind of has kind of predicted for all the things we talk about crapshoot and anything can happen and TCU makes the final last year. Look, the the schools that win national championships by by definition have have had a plus more than half of their recruits have been have been blue chip prospects. And we're going to see like if a if a team that that really plugged holes through the portal um can bust through and and win it like yeah obviously LSU in 2019 did it with a transfer quarterback Joe Burrow um and and just had this death star kind of once in a lifetime offense but that that team had a 64% i believe blue chip ratio like they had recruited from the high school level at a at a really high level and it also like the i think nowadays more so than being a straight one-to-one expression of the talent on your roster. Cause a lot of those guys transfer out, right? Even at the blue blood programs, like not everybody can make it. Not everybody makes the two deep. Some guys are, are going to not work out and go elsewhere. It, even if those 64% aren't all to a man on your roster, still, it's still an expression of where you're at as a program, right? It's still an expression of what kind of recruiting program you are. <clears throat> excuse me so if you are filling holes through the portal and you're that kind of program the transfers you're bringing in are probably pretty good what what is going to be interesting is are there going to be teams like washington who i i calculated their blue chip ratio myself i it's about 35 percent this year i think give or take uh, based on again it's you're just counting high school and junior college signees in your four most recent recruiting classes so 35%, not a terrible number, but not a number that you would look at and say they have any chance to win a national championship. But they have gotten big-time contributions from a significant number of those four-star recruits. They have gotten four-star type contributions from a number of three-star recruits. And then they have supplemented positions where they were lacking through the transfer portal in a really significant way. Like I mentioned, you, you think about who the most impactful transfers on this team are Michael Penix, Jr. Three-star recruit Heisman trophy runner up Jabbar Muhammad, three-star recruit second team, all conference cornerback Dylan Johnson, three-star recruit thousand yard rusher, second team, all conference running back Jalen Polk, three-star recruit thousand yard receiver stepped in and, and was essential when Jalen McMillan went down and you got, you know, Giles Jackson made some contributions. Raylan Goforth is, is in the rotation. So mm -hmm. it's not a transfer heavy team. It's not like, Oh, well, if you got a low blue chip ratio, just kill it in the transfer market. It's that they, the transfers they have have all been super big time. And then, you know, they recruited at a, I think 16 of their 23 signees in 2019 were four-star recruits. Um, and they've lost some of those guys, but like those, those previous classes, 2018 and 2019, where you've got fifth and sixth year seniors. Now those guys aren't counted in the blue chip ratio. Cause that was longer ago than four classes, but you're still getting big contributions from a really good recruiting class as fifth year seniors. So number of factors that have kind of lined up to put Washington in position to be the exception. There is still the opportunity though, for, either Texas in the semifinal or Alabama and Michigan in the final to not just prevent Washington from proving it can be the exception, but to prove exactly why the blue chip ratio is a thing and is so important. Like if they go out and lose, I don't think this will happen, but if they go out and lose 42 to 17 to Texas, your primary takeaway could be, yeah, well, that's what 
that's why recruiting at a four or five star level uh, out of high school at a, you know, for, for several years in a row is really important. Look at the talent gap. So going to be interesting to see if, uh, if they can, can be the first team to bust through and, and break that barrier. A couple of other things that, that factor in there, obviously COVID has changed sort of the, the amount of eligibility that players have. But beyond that, I would say having a coaching change the way Washington did where, I mean, I'm sure some people will object to the idea that Washington's recruiting hadn't fallen off the way you would usually expect when a coach gets fired the way Jimmy Lake did. Usually there's, it was really one year of pronounced on-field results and, and the way he rubbed people within the program that as opposed to a, a growing cumulative effect. Tyrone Willingham's recruiting toward the end reflected the, the, the fairly precipitous decline that the University of Washington as a football program had been on. Jimmy Lake wasn't there long enough to have that happen. Um, and then you get a, a change in coaching staff, and that's going to create some opportunities at a time when the, the transfer portal is opening up. Like that's the timing of it is is unique in that regard to have an opportunity where Michael Penix ends up coming in. The other part is that Washington benefited from what I would consider unusual draft eligibility decisions. I don't think in most situations a school would get the number Roma Dunze, Troy Fautanu, and even to some extent Penix, though I'm not sure about Penix, those were unusual decisions guys that would have been drafted high enough that you would usually expect them to go maybe even Jalen mcmillan mcmillan might be on that list too though i'm I'm less certain about him than i am about a dunze where washington most times when players make uh the financially prudent or the best career decision for them would have been for certainly for fautano and odunze to leave and they didn't because they wanted to come back and play. And that's that. I don't know if it skews the ratio or how it does it, but they Washington got fortunate in that regard because they're really, it's great that those players came back. And I don't think that would usually happen. I don't want to put words in, um, in Bud Elliott's mouth, the, the creator of the, the blue chip ratio. I would guess that a reason you only look at the previous four classes is because you assume that a fifth year senior um, probably isn't necessary. I mean, there's examples, there's examples of, of guys who are, you know, super impactful for championship teams all the time. But, but for the most part, a guy who's a fifth year senior probably isn't like an elite NFL type prospect. And that's right. The whole reason that it's important to have blue chip players is because of how much more likely they are to be NFL players, how much more likely they are to be NFL draft picks. That's just, you know, you can say stars don't matter and it's about development and rankings aren't everything. And like, of course it's true that rankings aren't everything, but they are predictive to an, to a, to a statistically provable degree when it comes, Hey, if you're a four star, you're, significantly more likely to be drafted than the, than, than a three-star just in the aggregate. If you're a five-star, you're even more likely to be drafted. So like, that's why, that's why it matters. Um, and yeah, you're like, I think the, you know, the, the, when you're, when you're looking at the blue chip ratio and what goes into it and, and someone like Troy Fautano, someone like Braylon Trice, 
Romo Dunze a little bit different because it's only his fourth year. But yeah, you'd say, well, typically somebody that good probably isn't coming back for their fifth year. Again, there's exceptions, but um, they they got a lot of them. This they got a lot of exceptions this year. So you know, Michael Penix is in his sixth year, right? So like COVID skewed things, and and coaching matters, right? Like you've got maybe Washington isn't quite as talented as Oregon by based on recent recruiting results, Washington's not supposed to be as talented as USC. Um, But in games that are decided in the margins and that are close and come down to big plays, like having a coach like Kalen DeBoer, who has just gotten that kind of performance out of his teams historically for his whole career, no matter where he's gone, you know, that, that makes a difference too. They got that dog in them, Christian. They got that dog in them. <laughs> are there uh, are there any of the the recent transfers who you believe have the 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 most the the highest dog in them quotient? Uh, any any of their portal guys who you're most excited to see? Dude, BJ Green. Mm-hmm. BJ Green is. Um, I thought Arizona State had a legit defense this year. I, I I really like there and and that dude, um, I don't know how he profiles as an NFL prospect, but he looks he is every bit that sort of bowling ball off the edge. Uh, I am excited about him. I don't know as much about the kid from Montana State. Is his name Valdez? Sebastian Valdez, yeah. Um, but I. I do think that those are the spots like up front is where Washington could use the most strategic depth or that that's where I think they could benefit most from it. So I I'm most excited about those, but if there's one guy it's, it's BJ green. And then of, of course the quarterback, like I'll, I'll be, I'll be really excited to see how we saw how Michael Penix came in, but he had familiarity with Kalen DeBoer's offense. I'll be interested to see how someone who doesn't have that background, how how the offense works with him um, and and how. If that's a better fit for him or how how Kalen goes about and Ryan Grubb, I'll include Ryan Grubb in there, how how they they profile and spotlight the guys that they like and what what this system does for them, because right now we basically have just seen Penix and I'm really curious to see how his offense changes dependent upon the quarterback, or if this is just a system that whichever quarterback you plug in there gets a lot of, becomes a much more effective passer. There is, I am really, really intrigued, compelled, convinced that what these guys do on offense is going to be great for the quarterbacks that they end up coaching. Because I think, I think whatever is going on in Washington's offense, and I don't want to try and say it's DeBoer's offense or it's Grubb's offense, these guys, like there is something special that they've brought out of the players that I've seen them coach, Penix and and and, and Hayner most specifically. Uh, of all the transfers they've had, I, I'm going to say this year and last, BJ Green was the one that popped up when he announced that made me go, whoa. Yeah, man. I didn't need, because there was no zero... It just goes to show, like the guys who are really good that they get. You're probably it's you're probably not going to hear about it, you know. Like kind of sp- go circling back, circling back per per my previous statement, circling <laughs> back to the conversation about 
you know, how, how this stuff's business like. Um, the, the, it seems like the big impact guys uh, move in silence, similar to to real G's uh, like lasagna, Danny. Um, <laughs> do you do you credit that to Baker Mayfield or to 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 Wheezy? I mean, to Wheezy, clearly. It's got to got to go to Wheezy. Got to go to Wheezy. Mm-hmm. Uh, best best hair. Best hair in the transfer portal absolutely goes to Ethan Barr. Yes. I mean, there's, <laughs> I feel like um, if you're playing middle linebacker, you can get away with that in a way that doesn't necessarily translate to every position. He's, he's got, maybe the, it's just because a... I'm thinking of Ben Burkirvan. Oh, Burkirvan that was there. Cause I was going, there's a couple of guys with blonde flowing locks in the NFL right now, which for a while, I was convinced they were the same person. Van Ginkle and then uh, Azaloni. AC alone is a rapper's name that I kind of call him by. But uh, the 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 flowing locks of the middle linebacker, flowing blonde locks, are pretty compelling. Uh, but BJ Green's a guy. I mean, the, just the last two times they've played them, um, that has really stood out. Just thought, like, man, that guy's a player. He walked on at Arizona State. Um, had some lower level offers, I think walked on kind of your typical, he's only six one. So you can, you kind of guess like the reason he probably wasn't recruited as much is just cause he, he doesn't have that length that you're usually looking for. I, th- I think he, he has decent length, but you know, you're looking for someone who's, who's six, four, six, five out there and he's a little shorter, but man, he's powerful. He's, he's aggressive. He gets after the quarterback. Um, He's the one who uh, had the targeting hit on Penix in, in Tempe last year. In fact, um, I, I think Husky Dude, fans are over that, though. I think they're he, they're pretty excited for him. I don't know how he projects as an NFL edge rusher or where he projects in the NFL, but that dude is a badass college football player. <laughs> you just you just seen it. That was a legit defense, and he was absolute handful. So that's that's big. I mean, you figure him and, and maybe Zach Durfee. Are are your starters at, at edge Free next Durf! year? <laughs> I still I still think the way to unveil Durfee is to bring him out on a hand truck with a <laughs> Hannibal Lecter mask for the Sugar Bowl and like let him know like like we got something for you here like wait wait till him. you you're, see this <laughs> you're, you're holding him back he's snarling that's exactly right like once <laughs> what we we don't want we. Once we let him go, we can't get him back in the box. So you guys just better be ready for this. They bring him there in an armored car. He doesn't even take the team bus. Well, legit, we maybe there's not enough showmanship done in those sort of things. But this week, when the Seahawks they play they played the Eagles and Jalen Hurts was sick, so they flew him out separate from the team. I was like, it kind of has an effect when you're like this guy flew out separate. Like we need to do more sort of uh, theatrics around the unveiling of players and, and, and releasing them out onto the field to play. Yeah. The, in the college football playoff, I think is a perfect venue for that. God, can you imagine <laughs> just this, this, uh, this totally like understated, even keel Washington program where, you know, the culture's very like, you know, speak with your pads, show them on the field. And they, they show up with Zach Durfee wearing a muzzle. And on a hand truck, we're not even going to count. Trust him to walk. I, I mean, some some teams have what the Road Warrior spiked pads. I've seen heavyweight championship belts, so it's not like you can't have props. 
Like props are allowed. It's part. It's part of it. It could be part of the rules. Just a little psychological warfare. You better get a sack if you're going to do that, though. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, Chuck Morrell made it sound like you know he he's going to play. It's it's not. Um, and it's funny. I, I mentioned Zach Durfee, and and he kind of goes, "Ah, oh, the legend of Durf." You know, like I, I think it's uh, they get a kick out of you know how much anticipation there's been, and obviously they've been working really hard to try to get him eligible. Like they. That wasn't that wasn't just uh, going through the motions. Like they wanted, they wanted him to play this year, and he would have played. He would have been a guy for them. Obviously, you know, not going to start over Braylon Trice or ETF. But um, I asked Chuck Morrell if if he's in a position to contribute, and, and he said he thinks he is. So I don't know what that looks like. You know, six snaps, eight snaps, ten ten snaps, special teams. I I don't know. Um, but it's it sounds like uh, it. Don't be too surprised if you do see him out there on the field. I'm curious to see it and 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 what a moment uh what a moment that'll be for him to to make his his FBS debut in a college football playoff game. But yeah, I I like I'm I'm I don't want to I don't want to like overhype a guy ever who who hasn't put on a husky uniform yet. Um or like lead people to believe, oh, he's going to come out and, you know, play 30 snaps and, and just instantly like take over this game or anything like that. But I also have heard the way his teammates and coaches have talked about him since he's been here. And it's not the way that you usually hear guys talk about a first year player who hasn't showed it on the field yet. Like you could, there's this, there's kind of this, um, this silent, like, okay, you, you know, you guys just wait. Like we've seen it in practice. We know what he is and no one else does yet, but, but you're going to see. So I don't know if that's going to be like fully unveiled in game one in the sugar bowl, but um, be interesting to see. These are the kind of stories that I love about college football when it's almost an urban legend or kind of a myth where you're not really sure. Bob Sapp was that way when I was in college. Sapp was... Everybody that lived in the dorms knew Bob Sapp, and he was this enormous, he was an offensive lineman, but he was initially recruited to play defensive line. And there were just all these weird facts that you knew about Bob. Bob didn't drive. Bob did not have a driver's license. Driving scared the hell out of Bob, which was funny because he was 320 pounds and could do the splits. Just an absolute physical marvel. Uh, The legend also had it that Bob's parents dropped him off on campus the summer that he enrolled. He was from Colorado. I believe the Colorado Springs area. And according to the legend of Bob Sapp, uh, they dropped him off before practice had really started or people could check into the dorms. And they left without giving Bob any way to contact him. (laughs) He was there. And he supposedly basically went over to Randy Hart's office. And Randy Hart's like, practice is not going to start for another week or so. He's like, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) Bob Sapp got into a fight with Jamie Wendell, uh, who was an offensive lineman. And I believe at the time, I believe at the time Bob was still a defensive lineman. Uh, They eventually moved him to offensive line. And according to the legend, uh, Bob ripped the face mask off of Wendell's helmet. And Bob, (laughs) Bob then turned and removed the face mask from, face mask from his own helmet to make it fair <laughs> man <laughs> and i asked bob about that and bob bob did uh did confirmed the story and said he shouldn't have done that because my neck really hurt after i ripped off my own face mask 
those are the sort of things that are the best part about college football in my mind, where there's this supposedly you're not quite sure how true it is. And maybe there's a little bit of embellishment going on, but you're also, it happens in college football where a guy that wasn't, nobody expected much from, and nobody really had all of a sudden just becomes sort of this inexplicably dominant and really fun to root for player like that still happens. It happens to some degree in the NFL, but not nearly as much as college football. I'm really excited. I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. Durf is free and I'm really excited to cheer for him. That might whether be a or fun not. Story, he come, like... Yeah. Whether or not he comes out in a hand truck and a handle collector <laughs> mask. Can he play in it? You probably would have to take it off <laughs> and put his helmet on. Uh, that might be a fun story. Just like the most, the most legendary players or legendary stories and, and not legendary players as in like, Oh, like Michael Penix Jr. Is a legend, you know, like Steve Entman's a legend, but like those, like you said, those kind of behind the scenes, like almost larger than life, kind of, kind of big fish. If you've seen the movie, big fish, uh, type of stories where maybe there's a kernel of truth, but you can't quite believe that this is really how it happened. Like, you know, Reggie Williams, uh, which really did happen jumping on the table um uh, during training camp during freshman hazing saying i'm better than every person in here um as a you know this this rookie freshman receiver and and then it turning out that like he was pretty much right he he was you know pretty much from that day there was a legit that was a legit tension between the guys that had been recruited by lambright and and the new heisel recruits that there was a culture shift that happened um in that in that time where the guys that had been recruited by lambo saw themselves as more old school and tougher where uh the new heisel guys were coach raft trip and uh, a little bit of uh montessori uh everybody's special sort of snowflake criteria uh we got a request from listener melody that that we talk some jake browning on this week's episode and i think that's a great idea yeah, I actually was going to read. I just pulled up the tweet. Um, it was from Field Yates. The NFL has been tracking QB starts since the 1950 season. Just one QB in that time has 1,000 plus passing yards and completed over 75% of his passes in his first four starts. Jake Browning. That How was about that? Yeah, that was forward to, forwarded to me by Sam Hosier. Um, A... I'm super happy for Jake. I, I think that's freaking awesome. Um, I'm also, and I'm not going to pretend, I am wildly surprised. And and I think that's that's cool as hell. Uh, and it really, it sort of shows that my conclusions that I'd drawn about him as a quarterback, that I might have sold him dramatically short of what he's capable of. Yeah, I mean... He definitely worked on his arm strength going into the draft that year. That was always the knock on him, right? That he he couldn't make quote unquote all the throws. Um and you saw that show up, right? He'd underthrow some deep balls and you know, he couldn't stand on the opposite hash and and put it on a rope like like Michael Penix Jr. can, for example. Um and you know, also some decision making stuff, right? Under pressure, he could be a, a pretty adequate scrambler. He could also turn and run backwards and make some ill-advised throws just you know that he needed to tamp down that um that desire to that that just every play can still be made you know he he played like there was he thought he could salvage any situation 
if he just kept retreating or just put it up or just, you know, he, he had a hard time accepting that, okay, this is going to be a sack. Let's not make it any worse. Or this needs to be a throwaway. Let's not make it any worse. Um, not to like a ridiculous degree. It's not like he threw an insane amount of interceptions or anything, but when he made bad plays, they looked really, really, really bad. Um, and man, he's just, he's just hung with it. He's just stuck it like he he is a much better quarterback than he was coming into the league, despite not being able to to refine his craft on the field. It's been all behind the scenes. And, you know, he the Bengals aren't calling some, you know, coddled, modified version of their offense. Oh, my God, we're playing the backup quarterback now. So we need to just run the ball and try to win 13 to 10 like they're, you know, they're in a tie game late in regulation with. with 30 seconds left and they're calling timeouts to try to get the ball back to give him a chance to, you know, lead them to a, to a a game winning drive. So yeah, really, hopefully he gets a contract out of it. You know, hopefully he can get a little bit of stability and, and, and make some, some life changing type of money. And um, it's been quite the audition for him. Well, I I think that part's done. Um, I think that he will, at the very least have another five years as a backup, just based on what you've seen here. Um, I also think he's played well enough that you could see a team trade to give him a chance to become the starter. If, if they end up in the playoffs or winning a playoff game, you'll see a team trade for him to be the starter. Um, maybe pair him with a younger quarterback, but I, I would say that that's look, if you're a backup quarterback, if you're seen as a good backup quarterback, that's a ticket for 10 years in the NFL. Geno Smith is, is, is pretty good evidence of that. Um, and I, I think he's done that. And there are teams that are starting to look at him and to wonder if he could see he, he could be more than that. The Jake was better earlier than anyone had any right to expect. Jake played as a true freshman and then his sophomore season, um, he was he was so much better than anybody had any reason to think he would be in those two seasons. And then you didn't see him take the next step as a quarterback. And I, I don't think that's entirely on him, but that was kind of the storyline of what happened. And from my vantage point is that you didn't see him take the step where all of a sudden he's able to win games and sort of tip the balance. He didn't become that Deshaun Watson caliber of quarterback. And that's not a huge knock on Jake Browning because Jake Browning was an excellent college quarterback. He's a really good quarterback in the history of Washington football, but he didn't take that next step that his sophomore year in a lot of ways was, was the high point of it. And when he was done, I kind of felt like what you said about him Maybe trusting his ability to scramble and extend plays a little bit too much. I I thought he would have been better served. He needed to make decisions to throw the ball quicker. And that just never happened those the, that junior and senior year, whether it was throwing the ball away or making a quick read, that he would have benefited from having a quicker trigger. And and I thought that was a reflection of of decision making. Um Watching him now, that quick sort of decision making, the Bengals have some badass targets. I in a team with T. Higgins and Jamar Chase, like those are th- those are two, if not two, number one receivers, a one and a one A. But Jake is executing that offense at an incredibly high level. 
And it's really cool to see. And I'm really happy for him. And it does make me sort of question of we we reach conclusions on players off a pretty small body of information. And we certainly don't know all the things that were happening. I'm still convinced his arm was injured. Something happened to his arm in that sophomore season, kind of about the time of the USC game that 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 something changed for him health wise. But I don't know that. And we don't always have all of the information, but I'm I'm super pumped to watch him. It's cool as hell. Yeah, I mean, he played hurt a lot, and he definitely well, he he had the, he had a shoulder injury. He had surgery um, yes. that off season after his sophomore year. A um, lot of a uh, lot of lot of pregame injections uh, for for him to to manage the pain um, through his college career. And it's hard, man. Yeah, missed one game his freshman year. Um, Plus, he has the point. The yeah. point. One of the iconic moments. I added an iconic moment. After that win over the Vikings, did you see the clip? Yes, they shouldn't have cut me. <laughs> Never should have cut me. <laughs> if you get re- if you get released or fired by a team, and I guess being released is getting fired, you you absolutely get the right to roast them if you come back and beat them. <laughs> you absolutely get the right to roast them. Well, that sounds like it. Of all the times he was cut, as he said in his post game press conference it sounds like the the vikings did not do it in the most uh professional way so i think that that stuck with him as well obviously also the other thing is when when you're at at a position like jake browning you can also watch decisions that are made not because of football talent and because of where a guy was drafted or what they're expecting from a player or how it's going to make someone look if they keep you over the guy that you outplayed and As a football player, there probably isn't anything that would be more aggravating than to know a decision was made based on someone else's reputation and not your own performance. Like that's got to chafe against everything that you've ever been told by any authority figure in the game of football. And you're like, you guys are all full of it. (laughs) Liars. (laughs) Um, That's I I yell the same thing he did whenever I run into anyone from the athletic in the press box. <laughs> no, Look at I'm me joking. now. You never should have let me go. <laughs> um, that was the, that was the most fired up. I've seen Jake Browning. The second most fired up was probably on the sideline at Cal after they, they put Jake Hayner in the game. Oh, um, freaking pick six. <laughs> that was so bad. <laughs> he was not, you know what? That was when like, I, yeah, I always knew Jake Browning with his, you know, pretty fiery beneath the, the calm exterior that he showed with the media and everything. And he wanted it bad. You know, that guy, that guy burns for, for football and and everything that goes along with it. Um, He was still not over that when we talked to him post game Stanford a week later, because he hadn't talked since there. He didn't talk after that Cal game. He didn't talk during the week. I don't, they they didn't make him available. Um, And we talked to him after they'd beaten Stanford and, he was still like, he's like, yeah, I, I met with the coaches. I told them I didn't agree with that. I didn't agree with the decision. I don't under, understand why. And we talked it out and we got through it, but like, I was pissed and I was like, man, that's, that's as honest as I've seen him be. Not that he was ever dishonest, but you know, he was usually the 
toe the line, don't rock the boat, don't say anything. You know, he was a quarterback in Chris Peterson's mold. He was going to conduct himself with the media and publicly the way that Chris Peterson wanted him to. And and that, you know, right toward, toward the end of his career there, I mean, I, that was the one moment where it was like, wow, okay. Like, he's he's still pissed off about this. Like, he's, you know, and I don't blame him. I know there was a lot of fans... There was a lot of unrest when it came to Jake Browning coming into his senior year. There was a lot of people who Jake Hayner had a great fall camp. I think he was like seven for seven in some mop up duty against like North Dakota or something that year. He'd looked pretty sharp in the opportunities he'd had. And there were people who were like, I'm tired of watching Jake Browning like slog through with this offense. Let's see what the backup has to do. Um, But it was as if Chris Peterson in that moment handled that situation the way that a fan would it was like he reacted the way that a fan whether it was peterson whether it was bush hamden pushing for it i mean who knows obviously ultimately that's the head coach's decision but um i think i i think jake browning it was just like he was so mystified like what like yeah i know i'm not playing well but i'm the i'm a senior i'm the starter we're winning the game we're on the road well you know what are you doing he was he was so perplexed by that in retrospect Jake Browning was right. (laughs) And I'll say that. Never should have benched me. The players should have more room to express how they feel. Like there's nothing wrong with a player saying, I don't agree with that decision. I told the coaches, I don't agree with that. I was mad about it. I'm still mad about it. I understand why you can't have that sort of transparent discussion on in the context of teams, why that's so unusual, because that gives license to everybody to kind of get mad publicly and you create sort of an impression, but there's nothing wrong with that reaction. And Jake Browning was right. Like that was an emotional decision to bench him. And it had a, a terrible result, an observably awful result. They were leading and they <laughs> it was a pick six. God, it was brutal. Um, and I, I would agree with you. I think you're right. I think, I think there was the, the reaction, the, the, the coaching decision reflected more frustration than it did what gives us the best chance of winning this game. And it's funny because Jake Hayner was so popular with Husky fans up until that point because he was the backup, right? And he was the guy they wanted to see instead of Jake Browning. From that moment on, because he throws the pick six and then he's the guy standing in the way of Jacob Eason, the conquering hero, getting the starting job. From that moment on, Husky fans were done with Jake Hayner. And it's so, I've, I know we've, well, I won't get super into it because we beat this dead horse last year probably, but like the revisionist history on, wow, they really went with the wrong guy with Eason over Hayner. Hayner is the better college quarterback. True, but this the the degree to which people would have melted down if they'd gone with Jake Hayner over Jacob Eason, even if it would have been the right decision. And even though Jake Hayner wound up having a better college career, or at least put up better numbers at Fresno State, wound up being drafted at like basically almost the exact same position in the fourth round as Jacob Eason. Um, yeah, you 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 would have lost your mind if they hadn't what? started Jacob Eason. And that's got nothing to do with Jake Hayner, but you you would have lost your mind if they'd started Jake Hayner over Jacob Eason. Everybody would have gone crazy. And I might have been in this category about saying that Peterson wanted a little robot clone rather than an actual NFL arm. That 
that Peterson and his desire to have his offense run in a in in a very specific way that he was used to doing more with less and that he couldn't handle an actual NFL pedigree and 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 potential player that he would rather have Kellen Moore clones than he would guys that can actually play at the at the next level and that was going to put a ceiling on what he could achieve at Washington that's that's what the reaction would have been and like I said I might have been one of those people there uh <laughs> giving voice to that thought if if they'd gone with with Hayner over Eason it was as if people though like decided that because they wanted Eason to be the guy that like Jake Hayner sucked and oh yeah, but that's that's how people always see quarterbacks. It's always an emotional judgment, right? It it's it's very seldom when people have opinions about quarterbacks, it is almost never rational. Quite simply because you've never seen the other guy really play, except in very very rare circumstances. Even even when you do have a body of of work to judge, you love the backup quarterback because he's not the starter and you're sick of seeing the starter. It's the same thing with this year with Geno Smith and Drew Locke. Get Drew Locke out there. Why don't we see? We know that Geno stinks. And then you put Drew Locke out there and he doesn't look that good. And then it's like, this guy's terrible too. Get rid of him. They've criminally failed the development of quarterbacks. And then Drew Locke wins a game against Philadelphia with two throws. He throws, pulls out of his hind parts at the end. It's like, Drew Locke came back and the Seahawks are the place to salvage quarterback careers. None of it makes any sense. It was a hell of a catch by Smith and Jigba, too. Dude. My goodness. I saw a picture of it where the moment the ball, like he touches it, he caught the back half of the ball. With his (laughs) fingertips. God. And then I saw somebody else was like, he bobbled it. I'm like, yeah, he did. And he still got a sliding knee and a foot down. That was was one of the best catches that, that I've seen a Seahawk make. Um, that was really, really phenomenal. It was a hell of a throw by, uh, it was a hell of a throw by, by Locke. Uh, before we get to Ian's question this week, I, I should note that both, uh, Demarcius Davis and Jason Robinson have, have signed and filed their national letters of intent. So the Huskies are now just waiting on Dominic Kirks, uh, whose recruitment was always a little, seemed a little, uh, like it, like it would come down to the wire. I know Ohio state's been involved, so. Um, we'll we'll see where that one goes, but uh, all of all all the letters except for his are in among the guys who are currently committed. And then are we waiting on Minky as well. What's the what's the process with Minky? I think he was announcing at eleven fifty five Central, which is literally like right now as we're recording it. <laughs> so follow recruiting, you you kind of know he's uh it, he's been leaning very hard toward a Washington flip. That's been the vibe. So all right. Ian McFarland, our friend, our supporter, our compatriot, uh, his conversation with us now. Good morning, gentlemen, and a happy holiday and and Christmas to you both. Um, it is the season of eternal hope, so so let's fantasize a little as Washington fans. I'm not going to jinx anything. I uh, ran very close to the edge of that after the Oregon game. I have booked flights hotel and tickets to the game in Houston, but those are all refundable. And they're, they were booked on a just in case basis. I am not assuming anything, but while we're two weeks out and fantasizing a little, um, let's just say Washington beats Texas. They, they, and then they go to Houston and they, they find a way to score more points than Alabama or Michigan. 
and they have their first national title in 32 years. We're all going to be celebrating in Houston. Um, we're all going to be celebrating when we return home. Uh, I would sincerely hope there's a parade in, in the city of Seattle and it would all be much deserved. And then you'll start seeing the tweets come out. Where, where were you 32 years ago? Where, um, where were you in the, the, the Ty Willingham era? And what does this mean to you? Those, those will all come out and it'll be fun. And some of them will, will be, you know, heartfelt and inspiring. And then we'll cross a chasm. And someone in the greater Washington sphere is going to claim credit for that national title that has been won. Who is the most ridiculous person that is going to do that? And you can't say me. I mean, I've done a lot for this program. I went to one class at the university. I um, have um, attended games. Uh, I've, I've never put on a football uniform in my life. So, you know, I'm integral to every play the team makes. But um, who other than me is the most ridiculous person that is going to claim credit for this national title? I uh, I want to thank you guys for all the wonderful work you do through the year. And I wish you both a, a fantastic holiday with your family. Thank you for everything you do. And uh, I look forward to seeing you both in New Orleans. Go dogs, man. I've got my answer. You go first. <laughs> we mentioned him earlier this podcast. Who? Jimmy Lake. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not even for one of those, the players he brought in as a recruiter, right? Because he does have a footprint there. Odunze and McMillan are both. Jimmy Lake recruits, correct? Uh, no. Well, the they were Chris Peterson guys. They were that 2020 class that was signed like after Peterson had announced he was resigning, but before he'd coached his last game. Okay, so they had landed them. So who were who would be the best Jimmy Lake recruit on this team? Hmm. I mean, Jalen Polk. Polk transferred Polk, in. Went. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that 2021 class has been just decimated. Voitunufi, um, that's really it. I mean, well, Parker Brailsford committed to Jimmy Lake, um, so there's a there's a couple. Um, I mean, Cam Fabiculanen was a Lake DB. You know, Asa Turner was a Lake DB. Elijah Jackson was a Lake DB. Um, all Chris Peterson head coach signees, but you know, those were guys who, who wanted to play specifically for Jimmy Lake position wise, uh, Mish Powell, Dominique Hampton. So there's some, there's some numbers, but it's not the players that he right. brought in. I, I, I know that's not where you're going with it. <laughs> the ridiculous claim would be that if, if he hadn't put that edge into the program that turned out to be a little bit too much, learned out to be a little bit too much that by, by by coaching with that edge, he allowed them to 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 develop the toughness that they needed to be able to get over the hump. Uh, and more than just a good Pac-12, a great Pac-12 squad, but to be a that that he had that 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 edge for the national 
the national title swagger that he instilled the program with in his in his year and a half at the helm as head coach. So I thought you were going to go with by failing so spectacularly in his second season, he created an opening at head coach that occurred when Kalen DeBoer was still available because maybe someone else hires, like if they just go six and six and the sideline thing doesn't happen against Oregon, they're not firing Jimmy Lake that year. Maybe Oregon hires Kalen DeBoer. (laughs) Oh God. Who knows? Oh, I've got one. Pat Hayden. (laughs) So that would be because Pat Hayden hires Sark. Instead of Chris Peterson. Yeah. Because there were talks. Yes. So that's a pretty good one. Because not only does USC not become the juggernaut it may have become under Chris Peterson, but... It creates the opening for Washington to hire Chris Peterson. Chris Peterson elevates Washington from a seven-win type of program to a conference championship caliber program at the same time that Oregon recedes for a couple years. USC is finding itself screwing up, can't get right. And Washington becomes the kind of program that should, again, expect to compete for conference championships every year. Because they're not fire and sark at that point for sure no and and you would also say this based on what we saw happen to sark in usc things things were going to get worse at washington not better under sark if sark stays at the university of washington that was not uh a program that was on an upward trajectory um yeah i i that that's that's my own opinion about about kind of where things were headed and that has less to do with the talent and more to do with the stability of the program um yeah that's a pretty good one i'm gonna go even deeper here not not further into the past this is more recent um but uh maybe even more of a tangent does anybody else come to mind for you no but i do want to know if usc offers peterson that job does he take it Cause I've always kind of felt that he didn't want that job. The vibe was very much that it was like a mutual, this isn't a good fit. Um, I don't know that I could see him coaching at USC and I I don't think that USC probably was like, well, like this guy's, this guy's a really good head coach and super impressive, but yeah, I don't know if this is who we're looking for. I have, I have the, uh, the name I was trying to come up with. Um, Ty Helton. Who's Ty Helton. Ty Helton was the offensive coordinator Jeremy Pruitt hired at Tennessee when he took over the job there. He inherited a quarterback commitment named Michael Penix Jr., who Jeremy Pruitt told, don't worry, you're still our guy. There's still a a scholarship for you. Until he hired Ty Helton to be his offensive coordinator, and Ty Helton decided that he did not want Michael Penix Jr. He had other ideas for the quarterback position. That's what led Michael Penix Jr. to instead sign with Indiana and Nick Sheridan, uh, who he had a connection with at Tennessee. He'd been hired at Indiana. That was the connection there. And then his redshirt freshman year, Indiana hires Kalen DeBoer as their offensive coordinator, and there's the relationship there. So 
throw Ty Hilton on the list. That's a pretty good one. That's a really good one. It's weird to think about how the trickle-down effects of... It's the butterfly effect, right? A butterfly flaps its wings in India and it becomes a tsunami in California. That's that's pretty wild. Where you've got... Because Penix is from Tampa, so he would have wanted to play in the SEC and had a preference to playing in the SEC. And then that gets closed and he goes to a Big Ten afterthought in Indiana, but ends up connecting with DeBoer has a breakout season with DeBoer and then goes through a couple of injury plagued sort of career stalls out and then ends up being, that's pretty remarkable. You think about how like there's a certain amount of just happenstance that has the effect of shaping that one. I I would like that if Ty Hilton came out and said, Washington should thank me. I'd thank Ty Hilton for that. Like, thank you for being dumb as a post and thinking Michael Penix couldn't play quarterback in the SEC. We could uh, we could back it up further to former Tennessee athletic director John Curry for firing Butch Jones, to whom that- Michael Penix Jr. had committed. I like that. I think Ty Helton's the winner. Ty Ty Helton Ty Helton is is who, if Washington is to prevail, or even just the fact that they've gotten to the national championship, the college football playoff. Ty Helton, we have to thank for that. I guess it's Tyson Helton. Ty Helton. Tyson Helton. Um. Yeah, between Pat Hayden and Tyson Helton, who's got a better case? Helton. Yeah, because I'm not sure. A lot of monumental decisions had to be made after after the Pat Hayden involvement, and that was literally 10 years ago. So Yeah, although, but I mean, the alternate timeline for Washington is if, if Sark is not hired away from Washington, Washington wasn't moving on then, and that this would be an incredibly different timeline to have Washington without Chris Peterson is that I don't know where they would have gone from there. Um, It would be, but that would be an entirely different world. That was a pretty formative moment. Trying to think of a, trying to think of a Romo Dunze related, related uh, butterfly effect timeline. I don't know that there's a good one that comes to mind though. If, Rome had left after Jimmy Lakes fired. If he decided that John Donovan was as soon as the first sentence out of John Donovan's mouth, he's like, peace, I'm out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Not doing it with this guy. Where is Tyson Helton now? He's a head coach at uh, Western Kentucky. Hilltoppers. That's right. Yeah. They just won the famous toastery bowl. The toastery bowl. The famous toastery bowl. Maybe he knows a little bit about what he's doing. Yeah, they're uh, eight and five this year, nine and five the year before, nine and five the year before, nine and four in twenty nineteen. He's got some ears on him. Yeah, so he's been at it. Um, Was only at Tennessee that one year. Cost him not a not a not a super memorable. Tennessee, like Tennessee, of all of those, Tennessee probably came came out the short end of the stick on that one. I wish I, I wish um, Ian had submitted his own his own name. I'd uh, I'd like to see if he can do better than Tyson Helton. <laughs> it's a pretty good one. It's a pretty good one. When are you? Uh, when are you getting to New Orleans? I'm getting in on day of the game, 
and then I'm going to stay through the I'm fly back out on the third. But uh, yeah, this is this weekend, the fourth time in five weeks that I will be flying to the West Coast. And so then I'm going to fly out on January 1st because the game's so late um, and get out there for the game. I'm in transit a week from today heading out there. I might have to pack my pack my microphone and and I can. I can we can bring you next week's episode of Say Who Say Pod live from the Sheridan, not live, but recorded at the Sheridan. Uh, sounds good. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of signing day, such as it is. Uh, it'll be over by the time you're listening to this, but maybe Dominic Kirks will still be uh, still be percolating out there, uh, and we'll talk to you next week.